Yeah, good morning, Trinity Church. So glad that you guys are here with us this morning. My name is Jack Magruder. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, and we are going to be continuing into a series called Exiles. And you know what? I think for the last week and this week, this is a particularly sensitive set of topics and one probably where as followers of Jesus, we sense the disconnection with our culture the most. You know, Pastor Marvin's been kind of walking us through the idea that um, he picked this topic and called it exiles because there are just certain things that we who are followers of Jesus, the reigning and risen king, there are just certain things that we do differently than the world around us. There are certain things that we think differently about. There's just, a, there's just certain things that the world would say is the way to do things and we just say, no, it looks different for us and that makes us different. And so we're going to dig into that. Last week, Pastor Marvin led us into kind of dealing with a tough, tender, sensitive area as we talk about the way that we as followers of Jesus address the issue of gender and sex. And, and I'm actually going to continue that as we talk about sexuality a little bit more deeply today. So fair and full disclaimer if you have little ones here this morning whom you have not had the talk with, <laughs> whether you're online or here in person, uh, you may want to take them. Uh, just excuse yourself. You can go check them in. We have amazing children's ministry programming. If you're online, uh, you might want to just pause, um, help your kids to do something different, then you can review that uh, before you actually show them or make the decision to show them. But we want to dig into... Um, the idea that human sexuality is not something that Hollywood thought up. It's not actually the porn industry's idea. In fact, we as human beings didn't even think it up. It is God's idea. It was something that he designed from the very beginning, from the very first verses of Genesis, we realize that sexuality was part of the inherent design and command of the living God for us as human beings. But you know what's interesting? I think in the church, we've just chosen to not talk about it at all, or when we have talked about it, it hasn't really been that helpful. Now, our culture talks about it a lot, in fact, our culture talks about it in increasingly brazen, in-your-face ways. Like, you just can't escape it anymore. <clears throat> I don't care whether it's on TV. I don't care whether it's on the internet. I don't care whether it's on billboards, driving to and from. Like, it's just sort of everywhere. But for some reason in the church, we've just kind of shirked our responsibility to talking about it. And I think that's done more harm than good. I think, honestly, when we have talked about it, people have often left with more fear, shame, and guilt about the subject than legitimate tools to be able to figure out how to handle it. And that's crazy because, you know what? The Bible kind of talks about it a lot. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to talk about. And we don't want to load people up with more fear, shame, and guilt, but as we are working our way through the book of Titus, we are going to need to talk about it because Titus talks about it, and especially a couple of the darker elements of it. And so as we continue forward, 
I need to remind you of a couple of things. First, um, this book, this book called Titus, is actually a letter. And if you guys are new to Trinity Church, if this is your first time here, don't worry. You should be able to jump in just fine. If you're online, like, that's okay. We're, we're glad that you're here. But if you've been with us, you know that this book, which is actually a letter, was written by a man named Paul who penned most of what we call the New Testament. And this is a specific letter that he wrote to a man named Titus who was living on the island of Crete and was seeking to pastor at least one and possibly a number of churches. And as Paul wrote this letter to Titus, this was just sort of a series of instructions that he gave Titus about things that he either should be doing or shouldn't be doing as he was seeking to shepherd and teach and lead and guide these congregations on the island of Crete. And we also remember that Crete was a place that Paul actually says was known for being lazy for being evil beasts, liars, lazy gluttons. That's how people talked about people from Crete. Not exactly a bastion of moral rectitude there. You know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like, oh man, you better have your T's crossed, your I's dotted. Those people in Crete are prudes, let me just tell you. Not like that. Kind of the opposite. And that brings us to chapter three, verse three. These are things that Titus should be teaching. And I'm actually going to read you a seven-verse chunk, and I want you to take a look up on the screen. There's a section that is boldened, and that's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time today. But I want to read you this section. <coughs> uh, just give you a second to get there. This is Titus 3, verses 1 through 7, and this is what it says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy, courtesy toward all people. Man, what would that be like? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, do you see what I emboldened there? Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now, I don't know what you think of when, like, you think of the words passions and pleasures, specifically. When it comes to the word pleasures, I think of Chick-fil-A. I don't know about you guys. Like, I just love that place. Like, I've got my buddy Karen. Uh, she's sitting over here. She works at Chick-fil-A. I actually called her. I was like, how do they get people to say my pleasure? Like, how do you do that? Like, for everything. Like, when I go through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, and they're like, my pleasure. I'm like, wow. It just makes it like, it was, it sure was. You know, I mean, really, it's really cool. But, but like, I don't know what you think of. Maybe you think of something like passions and pleasures. Jack, I'm passionate about MSU basketball. Go green. And it is my pleasure to go to the games. Don't be telling me that Paul's going to be saying I can't do that. My grandkids are my passion. And man, it is, it is pleasurable for me to have and spend time with them. You know, Pastor Marvin and Tanya are going to have one of those soon. Guarantee you, they are going to be passionate about that. Right? Is that what Paul's talking about? No, clearly not. <laughs> 
clearly not. That's not what Paul is talking about. In fact, he's actually talking about things that are different than that. And he specifically says these are things we used to be. I mean, we are passionate about things. There are things that bring us pleasure. That, that can't be bad. But when it comes to this phrase, we who are followers of Jesus are going to be different. And so to understand that, we're going to have to talk a little bit more about what Paul is really getting at here. And I want to just say, sometimes it's helpful to do a little bit of digging on a word to understand the context where it was issued. Because a lot of times our translators will try to make it easy for us. So let me actually help dig beneath the surface a little bit. The word passions there, epithumia, is the Greek word. You might actually realize if you're reading the New King James or the King James or the New American Standard that it actually uses the word lusts. Now that puts a little bit of a different spin on it, doesn't it? See, passions is different if I say lust. Now, like, I mean, hopefully you can be passionate about MSU basketball without lusting for it. And the word uh, pleasures there is the word hedone, which, which is from the word that we actually get our word hedonism. And he does say, right, like, he does say, it wasn't long ago that we ourselves were these things. In fact, I love the way that the message version, anybody read the message version? I love the way that the message version translates this verse. Listen to this. It says, it wasn't long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, Easy marks for sin, ordered every which way by our glands. <laughs> That's descriptive, isn't it? Clearly, we are not talking about neutral passions or pleasures here, but we are talking about lusts. We are talking about insatiable desire. And usually when we talk about lust, what do we think we're talking about? We think we're talking about something sexual in nature. The truth is, is that's not necessarily true. Lust can be for anything. It can be for food. It can be for experiences. It can be for money. But the idea is that it is insatiable desire to like just, like it just can't ever quite get enough. It just chases it. And hedone is the same. It is the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. We do that. I mean, our culture is rigged for those things. The level of demand that we place on things that we believe will make us happy, we think is our right. Have you ever seen someone go ballistic at the Starbucks counter when they didn't have their $8 frothing hot tasty beverage available? Why? Because they believe they deserve it. We demand it. If I want it and it is pleasurable for me, I should be able to have it. And I will do anything to avoid the things I don't like. Hedone is sort of baked into our culture. And so is epithumia, lusts and pleasures. So here's the thing. Spoiler alert, this is just like almost everything else that we've been talking about. If you heard Pastor Marvin and Patty Rummins talk a couple of weeks ago about food, they highlighted the idea that food is from God. It is good. God gave it to us as a gift. It's not just fuel. There's actually an element of pleasure. It's why food tastes amazing. 
It's why we have all these different flavors that explode in our mouth. Like, yes, it is fuel, but it is also something that is fun and pleasurable. And and that's not bad. It was designed by God. But it becomes bad when we begin to view food as a source for something else. When you heard Patty talk about how she began to view food as something that gave her a sense of self-approval. Something that gave her a sense of meaning and belonging and satisfaction. And she started to pursue food for those things, which should rightfully come from God. And sex can be the same thing. It's good. It is holy. God designed it. It was his idea. But when we take something that was God's idea and we begin to make it a thing in and of itself, and we begin to chase that thing as a source for what we need that should rightfully come from God, we take a God thing that is a good thing, and then we make it into a God thing that is a bad thing. You know what another word for that is? We make it an idol. When we take something that should rightfully only come from God and we try to get from it what should rightfully only come from God, we make it an idol. And that's basically the same thing we're going to talk about with sex today. It is a good thing. God intended it. He built it for pleasure. We're going to talk about all of that. But when we take that thing and we make it something that we chase as an end to itself, then we take a good thing, we make it a God thing, now it's an idol. That is what Paul's talking about here. So that's what we're going to talk about. And to do that, we're going to kind of walk through some ideas biblically. Okay, the first thing is that we should talk about this. What is sex for? And what is it? Okay, like, we're adults. We know what it is. Um, But like, what's it for? What, What does the Bible have to say about it? Why did God design it? Was there a purpose for it? Did he have an intention for it? So let's talk about that. The first thing we need to know about sex is that he designed it for procreation. He intended it to be the natural result of a man and a woman carrying out the command to be fruitful and multiply and to scatter over the earth. We learned that in Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. It's the first thing that he tells humankind, be fruitful, multiply, extend over the earth and subdue it. And sexual union is the way you're going to go about doing that. In sexual union, you take two people, and as a result of their love, their connection, and their community with one another, you get a physical manifestation of that love that looks like them. You get more of them. And then they go, and they subdue, and they, they kind of populate, and they take over, and they take over, and they kind of move over. Like, that is the deal here. If I were going to tell my son to go mow the lawn, but didn't give him a lawnmower then I didn't practically help him to carry out the task. God tells the first people to be fruitful and multiply, and sexual union is the way that he intended them to carry that out. It was designed for procreation. Now here's the thing. Having babies, therefore, is not an inconvenience. It should not be viewed that way. It is this co-creative act between a man and a woman. Pause. I am not making a statement about birth control right now, by the way. Seriously, like that's a whole other sermon. That would be a whole other topic of conversation. Like I'm not trying to say anything about birth control. What I want you to see from this passage is that there was an original, functional, pragmatic, intentional meaning and purpose behind the idea and the act of sexual union, and that was procreation. Okay, so for the original tasking, the original directive to our first parents— Sex had a purpose and a meaning to carry out God's command. Procreation was part 
of sex's design. Second, he did design it for pleasure. He really did. If you don't believe me, just go read the book of Song of Solomon. It is an Old Testament book. It is R-rated. Right? If you've got little kids and you're sitting down and you're going to like read them a Bible story, you might want to skip over that one. Right? Like it is this passionate like articulation between a groom and a bride and there is sexuality and beauty and attraction and desire and mutuality and giving and receiving and submission and sacrifice and you can't read that book and walk away and think God doesn't really like sex. He does. And he intended it for that purpose. It's beautiful. He also designed it for intimacy. In Genesis 2.24, it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The idea of one flesh there, friends, is this, it's this sort of mysterious, beautiful way of saying that there is union, there is unity, there is oneness, there is the ability to both know and to be fully known in all of our vulnerability, all of our shortcomings, all of our weaknesses, and to still be accepted, welcomed, and desired anyway. Intimacy is part of the intention of sexuality. It's beautiful. And God built it that way. He designed it that way. He meant it that way. And you know what also, it also is cool? You don't have to have sex to appreciate those things. I want to talk specifically to my brothers and sisters who are single right now. Whether you are young, whether you're dating, whether you're single again, whether you're, whether you're single because you've chosen that or you've been led to that for a reason, a season, or forever, I just want to pause for a moment and say, you know, I'm really sorry that as the church, we do not honor your gift often enough or well enough. There are things you get to experience about intimacy with the person and the nature of the living God that married people do not get to experience. In 1 Corinthians 7, we'll talk about this in a little bit, Paul actually calls singleness a gift. He says he wishes everyone had it. Why? Because if you are single, you have an ability to experience a direct ability to serve and sacrifice and submit yourself to the living God in a way that a married person does not. Married people get to experience intimacy in a way you do not. But you get to experience intimacy in a way that we do not. So I just want to make sure that I'm clear. If you are single and you are here today, you don't miss out on the things that we are talking about here in relation to sex. It's just one way to experience them. And there is blessing for you if you are single today. The same way that there is blessing available to you if you are married and here today. Both ways have individual, unique, beautiful things to understand about the character and the nature of God. And intimacy is baked in to the very fabric of who we are. I would tell you that I firmly believe that every sin, every shortcoming, every evil in our world is rooted to a corrupted, malformed way of trying to get intimacy, but we just don't know how to go about it, so we do wrong, bad, evil, destructive things. We have this deep hunger to know and to be known, to see, to be seen, to be celebrated, welcomed, desired, 
We all have that. And God knows that. So, when it comes to sex and sexuality, I'm actually talking to uh, everybody. Because if, if you're single and you're like, Jack, I, I'm not having sex, then just, just translate this for intimacy in some ways. And hear me out. I'm just going to ask if you would hear me out. And we'll talk about some things. But here's the deal, too. God not only created sex, he not only intended it for procreation, for pleasure, and for intimacy, but he also designed how it was supposed to be expressed and how it was supposed to function. And he did actually give parameters for that. Um, I, I actually say that God gave us boundaries for sex. It's a lot like the way that um, we talk about fire. Uh, it's funny, I had a conversation with my family. I was like, do you guys remember me using this analogy talking about sex? Because I'm sure I did. And my kids were like, no, but I remember a bunch of other analogies. And I'm like, I'm sure I did. We're not sure you did. So anyway, skip that. Here's the deal. I'm pretty sure I did. But um, I think of sex a lot like fire. Fire is good. It is healthy. It is helpful. It can warm. It can cook. It can protect. It can light. It is good. But it is designed to function within very tight parameters. If you just walk through a forest striking matches, you can get burned. You can burn your life down. You can burn a, burn a forest down. You can burn a world down. Ask anybody who lives in California. Fire out of control is destructive. Sex is the same way. Operating within established boundaries and parameters that the one who designed it can give, it can be beautiful, warm, holy, helpful, but operating outside of those boundaries and parameters, man, it can burn you, it can burn your family, it can burn your whole world down. It is good. But God built it to be operating within parameters. Second, God himself honors and protects its sacredness. I love Hebrews 13.4. It says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You know, when, when we were talking about God is set apart and holy, he says the same thing about sex within the framework of marriage. It is designed to be set apart, honored, kept holy, sacred. There's something mystical, beautiful about it. I love how the writer of Proverbs says, it is not to be poured out into the streets. It is to be your own well, kept behind your own wall for you to enjoy with the wife of your youth. I love that. Being kept pure is just God's way of saying, you need to treat it specially. Finally, I do need to say this. God never ever intended it to be exploitative. Ever. He never designed it to be demand, dominated, degraded, withheld, neglected, or passive. It is designed to be a mutual exchange of submission and sacrifice between people who have committed their lives to each other and to experiencing that before the voice and the view of the living God. There's a reason why in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, it says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. 
It's designed to be mutual, not one directional. It's not designed to be something that just brings pleasure to one party. It's a symbol, brothers and sisters. It is sacred, and it's designed to operate within parameters. So, what is it then about lust and passion, the way that Paul's talking about it here, that is short of God's design for sex? Well, once again, they take something good that God designed and they make them something that they were not designed to be. They become an idol. And here's what I would say. Our culture and our world around us is complexifying things at a rate that we just can't keep up with, brothers and sisters. I will tell you the questions that we are beginning to have to answer and ask about all topics, but about sex specifically, we're just learning to ask them faster than we can possibly answer them. Uh, Like even within the framework of eldership, it's like if we try to go and say, let's pray and discern and hear and understand what the Spirit of God says about this issue, by the time we've been able to do that authentically and we come back with an answer, guess what? It's not even a question anymore. Now it's five new ones. Like the world is just complexifying at a geometric rate. There's no way we can keep up. They're like Pastor Marvin alluded to that last weekend, talking about even the way we think about things like sex and gender, it's just becoming increasingly complicated all of the time. Nothing is simple anymore. At least it's not for me. I don't know about you guys. So rather than trying to address every possible topic today, We're actually going to go in a different direction. My goal here this morning would be to equip us with something that is simple, durable, practical, and actionable. That you could take away from here and that you'd be able to say, okay, I may not know the complex, complicated answer, but at least I've got this. At least I can take this into the question. At least I've got a starting point from which to work. It kind of goes the opposite direction to complexity, right? Instead of trying to go more complex, we're going to get simpler and simpler. And we're going to start with a thought exercise, okay? This will be fun. Just hang with me for a second. If you knew that you were going to be stranded on an island for 30 years without the hope of rescue or contact with another human being, which would you rather have? A good, solid, solid, durable, dependable rifle with a thousand rounds of ammunition, or a good, solid, durable, and dependable knife. Okay, good. We've got people who would say knife. I got to tell you something funny. I was running this analogy by a buddy of mine who's like super relational, and he was like, I just need a volleyball. I'm like, what? He's like, Wilson! Like, right, so like, if you don't get that reference, if you're too young, just ask your parents about Tom Hanks and Castaway. But I thought that was really funny. Like, I don't need anything but Wilson, right? And be like, okay, well, still. All right, so we actually understand. Uh, for those of us who said knife, here's probably why we said that. Anyone who has spent any time in the outdoors or in a survival scenario of any kind probably knows that as powerful as firearms can be, as amazing as they can be, they're still extremely complex, and that makes them very limited. They're dependent upon chemical reactions, moving parts, and ammunition. In addition to that, anybody who is a brother or sister who hunts can tell you it takes a lot more skill to use one than you might think, and video games don't count. I'm telling you, 
Hunting's a skill. You don't just get to walk out and go, blam, and then eat dinner for three weeks. Like, there's a lot to it. If you run out of ammunition, a firearm's not even that good of a club. But if you have a good, solid, dependable knife, you can start a fire, you can make a shelter, you can dig a hole, you can create rope, you can skin uh, something that you hunted. This is always a fun one. It'd be like, okay, cool, you shot the deer. How are you going to skin it? How are you going like, to dress it? How are you going to prepare it? With a knife, you can do those things. You can fish with a knife. You can hunt with a knife. Like, you can do so many different things with a knife. It's why a knife is the better choice. And a knife, a good, solid, dependable knife, has three components to it. It's super basic, right? A, a knife has three things. It's got a good, solid blade. You guys can tell the blade on this knife is thick, it is strong. It's made out of tool steel. It can pry, it can dig, it can cut, it can chop, it can do all kinds of things. The strength of the knife rests on the blade. But it also has an edge. The edge is sharp. The edge is kept so that you, when you actually cut with it, it it's like it's capable of, of piercing things and separating things. If you need to make, you need to scale a tree to be able to make uh, bark twine, like you're going to need that edge. If you're going you're to field dress a deer that you, that you killed, like you're, you're going to need that. Like it needs an edge. It's not just a flat piece of metal. That, that might not necessarily help you very much. The edge is really important. And it also has a handle or a grip. And here's the thing, if you don't have a grip, it's not going to be that helpful for you because you can't really put that much force behind the blade or behind the edge. You need something that lets you hang on to it. And optimally, that grip, it needs to be the kind of thing that doesn't slip around very much, even if it gets wet, even if it gets dirty or oily or whatever. You need something that you can grab hold of. Very simple tool, but very, very effective especially in a survival scenario. So here's what I would say. In our world, I, I can't give you something that will work in every situation that has a lot of complexity, but I can give you something really simple that should serve you well anywhere you go. I don't care whether it relates to sex. I don't care whether it relates to finances. I don't care whether it relates to relationships. My goal this morning, and we'll demonstrate it on some real world sexual kinds of issues, but my goal this morning is to give you a knife. And it has three parts, just like a regular knife. And I want to tell you what those parts are. I want to give you some caveats for how we use the knife. And then we're going to walk through some real-world scenarios, okay? So here's the first thing. This knife is made up of three parts. The first part is the blade. It is the part that is the most necessary. It holds everything together. And spiritually speaking, this knife, the blade, is the lordship of Jesus, it is the first part of the knife. It is the first filter that I don't care what the issue is. You should drive it through. This is the first question you ask. What does the lordship of Jesus require of me in this situation? Because if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have already acknowledged that not only is he your savior, but he is also your Lord. That means that there is not a single area of your life, sexuality included, that is not under his lordship. It means that he tells you what is true. You don't. It means that everything you have is his, not yours. And it means that you acknowledge that what he says is best and is good is you and how you are going to do and live, with, live things, not you telling him. You don't declare to the king what is true. He declares what is true. 
You might have heard me say before, if you can move a king around to fit your own desires, he's a pawn, not a king. We don't serve a pawn, we serve a king. He tells you how he sets the board. He tells you what reality is like and he defines the nature of truth. Every area of your life is going to be submitted to the lordship of Jesus. The second part is the edge. The edge should be sharp. The edge is the authority of scripture. The authority of scripture. I love how in the book of Hebrews, it even defines scripture this way. It says the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, capable of dividing soul and spirit. It's really cool, isn't it? The authority of scripture is the edge of the blade. Let me tell you what it does and what it doesn't do. What it doesn't do is guarantee that we will all arrive at the same conclusion. That's important. It is possible to stand on the authority of Scripture and to arrive at a position that is both, I'm sorry, that is either new earth creation, old earth creation, or possibly even theistic evolution. You can do it. You can do it honestly. You can say, I have explored scripture and I have arrived at this conclusion. If you're familiar with the terms, you can arrive at a position that is either complementarian or egalitarian. Our elders just walked through that. You can arrive at a position that is either affirming or non-affirming. You can arrive at a position that is either eternal security um, or, uh, hang on just one second. I can never remember the second one. Uh, it's the Arminian, never mind. Okay, so you can arrive, you can arrive at those places. You can arrive at those places, but you have to be able to do so in a way that has wrestled with and contended with what scripture has to say. It is the word of the living God. What we are not arguing about is whether or not it has authority. Do you guys see the difference? It doesn't command that we'll all arrive at the same conclusion, but what we're not arguing about is whether or not it has authority. If scripture has something to say on a topic, it immediately has authority on that topic. Do you guys track? Okay, so the lordship of Jesus, the authority of scripture, and then the third part is the power of the spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. The handhold for the knife, the reason why it is so important is because the lordship of Jesus and the authority of scripture never requires something of you that the spirit of the living God is not capable of empowering you to obey. I think that the reason why we struggle with the lordship of Jesus in our culture is because we don't really like the idea of a lord, thank you very much. We've got rights. We've got demands. And the idea that someone else defines them is kind of hard for us. But if we call him lord, he does. The idea of scripture, right, defining our reality for us, man, that's hard for some of us. I saw a Twitter post that said, the Bible just needs to get with the times. Ooh. Yeah, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, Scripture has authority. And you know what? I honestly think that even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we actually give assent to the power of the Spirit, but we don't actually believe it very much. Have you ever noticed, and again, nothing wrong with praying for doctors. I have doctors that are very godly friends. We have elders who are doctors. I love doctors. I'm super grateful. If you are here today and you are a doctor, God bless you. Thank you for the work you do. Have you ever noticed, though, that as a lot of times as Christians, when we pray, we ask that God would give wisdom to the doctors. We don't just pray that God would heal. Have you noticed that? I think we should actually do both. 
Yes, I want the spirit of the living God to empower wisdom for the doctors, but you know what? I recognize that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within me and is still alive and at work in the world today. Father, would you just heal them right now? Brothers and sisters, like Katie was just talking about, do you know we have people in our congregation who have just been miraculously healed? I have a sister who had Parkinson's. She just doesn't anymore. Oh, yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah? The Spirit of the living God is capable of empowering us to do whatever that the, uh, the Lordship of Jesus and the authority of Scripture require, and we ought to begin to act like it. It is the handle upon which we take hold of being able to say, I am not asking anything of you that the Spirit of the living God is not capable of giving you the ability to do. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying it's not going to involve some change. I'm just telling you that there is provision and there is power for you to do so. So, let's talk a little bit about a couple of ways that this manifests itself. And there are some rules before we do that. First, I feel like it's really important to state that even though this is a knife, this is not for slashing, harming, threatening, and intimidating other people. Can I tell you what my greatest fear of this message was when I was kind of like preparing it? My greatest fear was that someone would hear what I have to say today and would walk away excited that they have a new weapon in their arsenal to go after the people in their world that bother them. That is not what it is for. I would remind you that in Ephesians 6, we remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against powers and principalities. It is against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You do not use this to slash and cut other people. When we walk out into the world as the light of the world in a dark and cold space, when we find people who are cold, hungry, broken, alone and lost. We don't threaten them at the end of a blade or intimidate them. We teach, we teach them how to make their own. We teach them how they can have a knife so that they can be warm, so that they can be protected, provided for, and cared for. We do not use this knife to slash and make others bleed. We don't threaten them at the end of our blade. We teach them how to make one. Next, I would tell you, this knife is a starting point, not an ending point. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight? This is kind of like that, right? It's a great thing to start with, but I'm going to acknowledge a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about in a few moments, they are complex. You might need more than just a knife. You can start with a knife, but then when you get beyond that, you might say, yeah, I'm also going to need a lighter, and I'm going to need some fishing line, Actually, now a rifle would really help. You know what? Like, I'm going to need some things to kind of bundle alongside. So while the goal is to give you a starting point, something that you can take into any environment and build yourself a fire, it is by no means necessarily the only thing you're going to need. Right? My neighbor's a, a former U.S. Army Ranger. Pretty sure if I gave him this knife, you could drop him anywhere in the world and he'd be fine. But you know what he would also tell you? If you'd let me take more than this, I would happily say yes. Right? Can I survive with just this? Sure. Is it easy to do so? Eh. Is it optimal to have some other stuff? Yes, please. So while this is a good starting point, it is not an ending point. 
And like Pastor Marvin said, guys, you just need to remember that the world around us is very complex. It's very complex. This is a simple tool. And you can't just ignore it. So like a real knife, right? You do need to work on maintaining the edge, on protecting it from rust, on keeping it sharp, on making sure that you watch out for it a little bit. For us as followers of Jesus, it means that you spend regular time in the word of God, sharpening that edge, keeping it sharp. It means that you spend regular time in prayer, connecting with the spirit of the living God, strengthening the blade and the handle. You don't just have this knife, put it in a shoebox, and then bury it in the backyard. You keep this thing with you. You just never know when it's going to save your life. So, let's talk a little bit about a couple of real-world scenarios where this might be useful or helpful. And again, I'm recognizing that these issues are way more complex, but it'll at least hopefully give us a starting point. Let's talk about dysfunction in marriage, specifically sexual dysfunction in marriage. Uh, as a pastor, one of the things that I've noticed is that oftentimes when there is sexual dysfunction in a marriage, it's because one partner is seeking to dominate, to demand, to order, or to control that their partner does things for them or with them. They dominate, control, demand. And or the other partner becomes passive, inert, unresponsive, barren, unwilling, and so they just disconnect, they detach, they neglect, and they walk away. If you have both of those, that's a really good recipe for sexual dysfunction in a marriage. If you have one of those, it's also enough to create significant dysfunction in a marriage. So what does the knife require? Well, the knife requires this. The Lordship of Jesus would say that my spouse belongs to my father before they belong to me. They are a gift to me from my father. So the way that I treat my spouse is the way that I treat my king. The edge, the authority of scripture would say that sex is built around the idea of mutual submission and respect, not demand, not withdrawal, not domination, not passivity. Neither of those are part of God's design. And the power of the Spirit permits me to offer myself to my spouse, even if it is not reciprocated, honored, or understood, because guess what? I'm getting what I actually need from my father first anyway. That's how the knife works. The Lordship of Jesus, the authority of Scripture, the power of the Spirit. What about sexual abuse? Brothers and sisters, I just have to tell you, if you've never heard someone say this before, please allow me. That is not God's design for you. I'm so sorry. What happened to you is not his intention for you. I've been shocked to read national standards that suggest that as high as one in four women have experienced some form of sexual abuse, assault, or trauma in their lives. And you know what's even weirder, even harder, even more horrific is that that appears to transcend socioeconomic, ethnic bounds. Like, it's just one of those things that is a pandemic, and it's even starting to approach the same statistics for men. Brothers and sisters, I am sorry. Your sexuality was not meant to be taken, corrupted, broken, or stolen from you. I'm sorry. You know what the Lordship of Jesus says and requires? It says that he can redeem anything. 
the living God is capable of taking whatever the broken, scattered, corrupted, harmed pieces of your sexuality are, and he says, those are mine, they belong to me, and I can give them back to you, whole, healed, and restored. The authority of Scripture never legitimizes, never authorizes sexual abuse in the name of lust or pleasure or anything else. And the Spirit of the living God can heal you. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not trying to pretend that that's just an easy, trite little answer that pastors say. No, brothers and sisters, I am telling you, I have seen it. I have been part of it. I have experienced it myself. Your Father can heal anything. I don't care how broken. I don't care how corrupted. I don't care how damaging. I don't care how horrific. The Spirit of the living God is capable to give you back all that rightfully belongs to you in the name of Jesus. What about singleness? Man, I'm just going to say again, I believe we have failed to recognize the challenges, the contributions, and the beauty of singleness. Man, single people can submit to the spirit of the living God in ways that married people cannot. And there is a place for you to belong in the body of Christ. And man, we want to celebrate that with you. I'm grateful for that with you. And the Lordship of Jesus says that your singleness belongs to him. Whether it's for a reason, a season, or forever, you can trust that he will steward it well. That it is precious to him and important to him. That he loves it, values it, and it is his. And his plan for you in that area is for your good and for his glory. The authority of scripture actually says that single people have a unique gift from God, that you are unencumbered in the way that you serve and respond to the risen Christ in a way that married people do not. And the power of the spirit is able to maintain your purity, your need for intimacy, connection, and communion with the people of God and directly with his spirit throughout the time of your singleness, even if it is lifelong. He is able to meet your needs. That's how the knife works on singleness. I want to touch briefly and quickly on the topic of our brothers and sisters um, in the LGBTQ community. Um, whether you have someone in your life that you know, that you love, um, that is struggling through those issues, or whether you are here or online today and you are walking through those issues, I need for you to hear me to say that far too often we have said nothing or only things that have harmed you, and I am sorry. We have not stood with you we have not helped you. We have not offered you much other than fear, shame, or guilt. And if you hear me say it ever, I've hoped you've heard me say it a thousand times, the spirit of the living God does not offer fear, shame, and guilt to his children. And so if you are struggling with your sexuality, with the feeling that you cry out in the night that you're in the wrong body, with gender dysphoria, or with sexual disorientation, I just want to tell you that we want you here that we want to walk with you as your brothers and your sisters, that your father hears your cries and he is able to meet them. And let me tell you how this works. The lordship of Jesus would offer to you the idea that your sexuality, your orientation, and your body, you don't declare those. He does. And the authority of scripture 
is one of those things that you will need to walk through. You will not find a place in Scripture where a same-sex relationship is heralded, where it is commanded, or where, where it is valued or validated. But the Spirit of the living God is capable of healing, of restoring, of empowering, and of giving you immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine to walk alongside the people of God, the Spirit of God, and this world in a way that honors him, honors you, and honors the people around you. And we want to do that with you. It matters that you do. What about pornography? I think that pornography is one of those sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We all do it. We all know. That's like just accept it. Brothers and sisters, it is not. It falls short of God's design. And let me tell you how the knife works. Your imagination belongs to him. Your fantasies belong to him. The outworking of those fantasies belong to him. Right? Scripture commands us to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the Spirit of the living God is capable of healing anything that is longing, lost, broken, disordered, or hungry in me so that I can walk in purity toward my brothers and my sisters. And finally, I just want to address my brothers and sisters who are dating or who are having an affair right now. And I would just offer you the idea that I would remind you that the lordship of Jesus says that because he created sex, he gets to define it. He gets to define the parameters in which it is used and expressed. The authority of scripture would tell you that the only time in scripture that sexual union is validated is not only between a man and a woman, but between a husband and a wife. And finally, that the spirit of the living God is capable of empowering you to do all that the lordship of Jesus and the authority of scripture require of you. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it's simple. <laughs> uh, my brother Fred Chasney is a runner. Uh, running a marathon is simple. You just put one foot in front of the other for 26.2 miles. Not hard. I didn't say it was easy. But here's the thing. If he is our Lord, if scripture is authoritative, and if the spirit of the living God is powerful, then you have everything that you need to be able to walk into any situation that you engage and to be able to say, at least I got a knife. And I can start with that. What does the lordship of Jesus require of me? What does the authority of scripture offer me? And what is the spirit of the living God empowering me to do? And you can go from there. And so I want to ask, would you bow your heads with me? As we go before the Father in a time of prayer, and I'm just going to tell you, some of you may need to do business with God. You may need to resubmit and re-sacrifice your sexuality to your God and your King. You may need to actually confess and repent of something that you are doing that is misusing your sexuality right now. There is hope and healing for you. Did you know? I don't care if you have stumbled, fallen, or if it has been taken from you. He can restore back to you your innocence. He can redeem and heal anything. And before we pray, I'm going to ask our elders and our prayer team members to come forward. And I just want to tell you, if you are struggling today, if you're like, I don't even know how that's possible, would you pray with, like, we will pray with you. We want to. We want to walk with you. We want to love you. We want to walk beside you. I don't know a single person on this planet, married or single, whose sexuality is not broken in some way. You are in good company. 
And you are welcome here as we pursue all that God has for us together. So let's go before the Father. It is in the name of Jesus, the Son of the living God, that we say to anything that is demonic or satanic, any enemy of God's or ours or our households, we tell you to stop speaking, to stop working, and to stop listening right now in the name of Jesus. We tell you to go straight to the feet of Jesus right now. We tell you not to communicate with anything on the way and not to return to us or to our households in any fashion. You are not welcome. But Father, your voice is welcome. And my brothers and sisters desire to hear it this morning. Father, you know what we have done with our sexuality. You know how we have broken it or it's been broken for us. You know how we have misused it. Or Father, you know how we have cried out to you for the strength to uphold our purity in the dark, pressured places. Father, you know all of that. And we bring it to you right now in the name of Jesus. And Father, we put it right back at your feet where it rightfully belongs. You are Lord and King. And we take our hands off of it. We back away from it. In your word, you say, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, would you cleanse us? And would you give us back all that rightfully belongs to us as sons and daughters in the kingdom of the living God. Father, I would just ask, would you tell my brothers and sisters, what are you giving them back right now? And Father, for them to have the courage to receive it, Father, that you would plant and nourish and water it and seal it by the power of your spirit, that it may grow and produce the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Father, for your glory and for their joy. I ask that you would heal what has been broken, that you would restore what has been mended. Father, for your glory, but that my brothers and sisters may live and leave this place in joy this morning. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, would you stand with me? Father, I bless my brothers and my sisters to go and to be the light of the living God in a world that desperately needs your light and your life. Father, would you let them go and not only use your knife well, but to teach others how to use it in the same way for your glory and for their joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.